Well, today we begin a brand new series. It is on the book of Jonah. And uh, when I say Jonah, what immediately pops into your mind? The whale. The whale. Yes, the whale. Jason, do you want to flip to our first uh, slide? Perfect. Uh, turns out about, though, as I've been researching and studying this week, preparing this sermon, turns out that the book really isn't about a whale. It's about God and his character, God's justice and his mercy working together to save an entire people group. Turns out the focus of the story isn't a whale, but rather a prophet who rebels against God and learns some great, great lessons, but he learns them the hard way. Turns out the application of the story isn't just for people 2,700 years ago in Jonah's day, but it is for God's people in every age, in every place, including all of us sitting here at Ocean View Community Church this morning. You can see our Jonah poster for the series, and I debated what to put on it. Um, the Hebrew actually says that it was a massive fish. So I contemplated putting that on the poster, but I thought that would just be horrendously confusing for everyone because uh, we all associate it with the whale. You know, this short biblical book, it's only four chapters. Uh, a young mom said to me, I, I know you're going to do Jonah, and I sat down and read it, and I couldn't believe how fast I read it. Wow, I'm done already. It, it is a short book, but... Scholars have pointed out over and over and over again that this little book of only four chapters is actually a masterpiece. There is drama. There is irony. The words, the characters, the incredible truths, the lessons. And actually, most surprisingly and, and astonishingly, this po book points us so clearly to the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn all that as we go through this the next eight weeks. And I'm really excited uh, to dig in. So as we launch in this morning, I want to carefully set the scene and answer some big questions. Now, if I don't take the time to do this, the whole time I'm going to be speaking, you're going to be thinking in your brain, Darren, that's great, whatever you're telling me, but what about fill in the blank? So I want to start off and answer some big questions. I found an atheist website this week, and they had this interesting little meme. It says, whenever you feel dumb, remember that many people actually believe this. And there's little Jonah inside the whale. Slightly offensive, but whatever. Here at Ocean View, we always face questions like that head on. So, are the people, places, and events of Book of Jonah historically plausible or not? Is this a real story or a fictional account. I want to read our first couple verses. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open it to Jonah. Uh, the words will also be on the screen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Our main character is identified as Jonah. He is the son of a man named Amittai. And it shows us that he is a prophet of God. He has a special message from God to go deliver to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. So the logical question is, is this the only place we ever hear of the prophet Jonah? The answer is no, actually. 
2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So we know Jonah's name. We know whose father was. We know his hometown. All of those would have been easy for any Israelite in his day to confirm. Jonah would have been a fairly high-profile person in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, just a quick, slight review. God set up the nation of Israel uh, when they were unified as one country, and even when they split into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. God set it up so that there was kind of three main branches of leadership to help run the country. The first was the king. The king's job was to govern the people well. He was to make an army to protect the people, make sure they had peace so that they could farm and and raise crops and, and livestock. They could provide for themselves and have more than enough so they could trade with other countries and peoples. The king was meant to also be a spiritual leader and really an example to inspire the people to serve the one true God. And in Israel and Judah's history, there were wonderful, amazing kings like David and Solomon, and there was some absolute terrible ones like Jeroboam. Now, the second branch of leadership, besides the king, were the priests. Now, the priests were to be the ones who guided the people spiritually, and that was on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, and they had several jobs. As people came to the temple, they were in charge of all the sacrificial system. So people would bring animals to sacrifice. The priests would would kill and prepare those in special certain ways. They would offer the sacrifices. They would pray on behalf of the people. And then they would actually teach the people. They would read the scriptures to the people in Hebrew. Now, a lot of Israelites, scholars have found uh, evidence over time that a lot of Israelites knew how to read, but not everyone did. And so the role of the priest, if you can't read, it's really important to have someone read Scripture to you. And so the priests had a real teaching uh, role and a real uh, role where they kind of stood between God and the people. So you've got the king, you've got the priests, and the third part of this leadership structure that God set up was the prophet. And the prophets were fearless proclaimers of God's message. The prophets kept the priests in line. And if God saw that the priests were becoming corrupt or getting off track, God would send his prophet and they would give him a good kick in the rear end and get him back on track. Now, pretty unique in the ancient world, the prophet actually had the same role with the king. Most ancient civilizations, the king was the absolute ruler. When you read the book of Daniel and you meet Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, this dude is in charge. Nobody tells him what to do. In Israel, it was a very different system. They had the prophet 
who God set up right from the beginning to say, if the king is off track, you have full rights to march into the palace and tell him my messages, to hold them accountable. So in an interesting, amazing way for an ancient culture, God had set up a system of checks and balances. The king, the priests, and the prophet. And that's what Jonah is. Now, Jonah would have regularly marched in and spoken with the king. Jonah would not have been an invisible person that nobody knew about. He would have had a certain level of fame. People would have at least known his name. So all of that helps us conclude that bottom line, Jonah was a real dude and people would have known who he was. Now that may be shocking to some of you this morning because you've assumed just completely that the book of Jonah is not a real story. It's a fictional story. Uh, It's got some good spiritual points, but it may surprise you that Jonah actually was a real person. Now the biggest miracle in the book is obviously part where God prepares a massive uh, fish-like marine creature to swallow Jonah and transport him back to the surface as he's drowning. Eventually carries him back to the mainland and spits him out on the beach. Now it matters what your mindset is when you come to the text. If you have it firmly set in your mind, as many skeptical people or atheists would, that miracles cannot occur and do not ever occur, then anything in the Bible that is miraculous is ridiculous to you. If on the other hand, you're convinced that there really is a God capable of creating this entire universe, our earth, there really was a guy named Jesus that died and rose again from the dead, then you are open to the possibility of the miraculous. Doesn't mean that you're a gullible person or crazy or you believe everything everybody tells you. It means you're a person of faith willing to believe God from your experience, from the truth of the Bible, from the natural world, from philosophy, from the miracles others have experienced. So is it even in the realm of possibility that God could prepare a massive marine creature to be a rescue vessel for Jonah? Well, most biology textbooks will tell us that the largest sea animal to have ever existed is the great blue whale. That is until paleontologists discovered the bones of an ichthyosaur. National Geographic magazine has a story on this. A man named Paul de La Salle was combing the beach at Lilstock, Somerset, England in May of 2016 when he found a large and really puzzling chunk of fossil bone. And suspecting it might have something to do with an ichthyosaur, he sent images to the marine reptile experts Dean Lomax at the University of Manchester in England and Judy Masser at the State University in Brockport, New York. Further searching revealed five fossil bone pieces. They all fit together to form a section kind of three feet long. And the scientists identified it as being part of the jaw of an ichthyosaur. Based on the size of that jawbone, scientists were able to extrapolate the length of this animal. And it was well over 90 feet in length. Then, a a year later, they found part of a ribcage of an ichthyosaur, and it was much, much bigger. They estimate well over 110 feet long. So, has God ever created a marine creature bigger than a blue whale? Yes, He has. 
Now, ichthyosaurs were long extinct by Jonah's day in 770 BC, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that God was preparing some sort of massive sea creature. Now, we all know that whales surface. They aren't fish. They don't breathe by gills. They get a huge gulp of air. They can swim underwater for up to 20, 30 minutes, and then they come back up, and their blowhole, they exhale, and uh, they breathe in fresh air. Is it possible that a drowning man could be scooped up by some sort of massive whale-like creature, brought to the surface, air comes in, allows him to survive? It's at least possible. Now, that's not all skeptics question in the book of Jonah. The next thing they have questioned is it says that when Jonah actually eventually makes it to the city of Nineveh, it says that there is a king of Nineveh. And scholars were quick to pounce on that, and they were saying Nineveh wasn't the capital city, so there couldn't have been a king in Nineveh. Now, Douglas Stewart, in his excellent and extremely scholarly well-researched commentary, on the minor prophets I've been reading this week, he says that the king of an empire like Assyria or like the Babylonian empire, the kings would have a practice that they would live in their capital city for a period of three, four, five years, and then they would move the royal residence to another city. And the reason they did this was to remind the empire, hey, remember who's in charge, it's me. And so they would purposely live in different cities of the empire. So it's very plausible to think that the Assyrian king would have spent time in Nineveh. Stuart also points out that in our modern age, we think of our country of Canada, very well-defined national borders. We think of our capital of Ottawa federally. It was a lot looser in the ancient world. There weren't borders, there weren't walls, there weren't gates, fences, It was very difficult to know when you stepped from the Assyrian Empire over into the Babylonian Empire. Really, cities functioned almost more like boundaries. Now, uh, Stuart cites the example in the Old Testament of a man named Sihon, who is called king of the Amorites. Deuteronomy 1, 4, and 3, 2. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon. Again in uh, verse 3, 2, the Lord said to me, do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sion, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon. So very clearly the king is, def- is identified as the king of a whole people group, the Amorite people group. Not just two chapters later, he is referred to as the king of Heshbon, one particular city. Set out now and across the Annan Gorge. See, I have given into your hands Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon in his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. So, and then one more example from the desert of Kedemoth. I sent messengers to Sion, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, So sometimes he's called king of Heshbon, the city. Sometimes he's called king of the Amorite people. Which is it? Well, it's both. They were kind of interchangeable terms. Kind of like us saying, Justin Trudeau's our prime minister in Ottawa. We know he's the prime minister of the whole country, but he hangs out mostly in Ottawa, except when he's on the campaign trail or apologizing. Oh, sorry. (laughs) 
Well, I didn't say that. Did I? Oh, I'm sorry. That just slipped out. So, Anyways, so if Jonah showed up in Nineveh and the king of the Assyrian Empire was living there for a couple years, it isn't wrong to call him the king of Nineveh. Okay, so bottom line, is it even plausible to take the book of Jonah as a stylized account of real people, real places, real history told in an artistic way? Yes, I believe it is. It appears that Jesus actually viewed the book of Jonah this way. Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Jesus says, And some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. On the other hand, is it okay, as Christian believers hold that the Bible really is the true revealed Word of God, is it okay for us to believe that the book of Jonah might be a parable? Yes, that's okay. We would certainly all agree that the parables of Jesus communicate incredible life-changing truths to all of us. Now, a parable is a story made up about something that didn't actually occur, but have incredible, true-to-life principles and lessons to, to teach us. Jesus made up a whole bunch of them, and they have gone down in history as some of the most amazing teaching ever spoken. So whichever side of the issue fall on, I think we can all profit from pastor and author Eugene Peterson's wise statement. He says this, In calling the book of Jonah a parable, I'm making neither claim nor denial regarding its historicity. Some Christians have insisted it's real history. Others have doubted it. Whatever the conclusion, it matters little for our purposes here. This treasure of a book provokes insights into our common lives across cultures and conditions and it is so used by preachers and poets, playwrights and pastors, novelists and scholars in all the centuries from which we have writings. I myself lean a little bit more to the side that Jonah conveys real history, but if you as see it as a parable, I'm 100% okay with that. Either way, we are going to be challenged and shocked and inspired to grow in our Christian walk as we learn from this part of God's Word over the next eight weeks. Well, my second point is called call and response. And we're going to read verse 2 again. It says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. This is God's call on Jonah's life. Now, Douglas Stewart, again, is helpful. He points out a few interesting little things in this verse. He says, Nineveh is called a great city. And we hear great city and we think, oh, it must mean it's a big city. Lots of people, huge area. Great in that kind of context actually meant leading or important. Nineveh was the second most important city in the Assyrian Empire. So it refers to importance. The next thing that's interesting in there is that it says, its wickedness has come up before me. 
And that Hebrew word has two meanings. It means both evil and wickedness that people do. And it also means trouble and calamity that happens to people. So Douglas Stewart makes a really convincing case that both meanings of the Hebrew word are intended. Now, the Assyrians were a nasty piece of business. These guys had a reputation as being really uh, warlike, really bloodthirsty. They would go in and conquer and burn and pillage. They were not a nice group of people. So God is sending Jonah, this Israelite prophet, to the sworn enemy of his country, Israel, these awful Assyrians. And it wouldn't be much more than about 55 years later that the Assyrians actually came and wiped out the northern kingdom, took all of the people into exile. But it's also true that Nineveh was about to experience an incredible calamity. So God sends this prophet on this amazing journey, both to warn the people, to get them to humble, to stop, to change their ways, but he's also there to show them compassion and mercy. Now we get why Jonah flees from God. A, he doesn't want anything to do with those awful Assyrians. But even more than that, Jonah knows God. Jonah knows God's heart. He knows his reputation. He knows his character, that God is merciful, that God longs to show compassion. And Jonah's greatest fear is that he'll get there call these people to repentance and God won't send disaster on them. He will instead show them mercy. That would just be awful in Jonah's mind. So Jonah runs the other way. You know what? That little attitude has a lot to say to us right here and right now. As wonderful and amazing as all of us are, God sees our true motives, our true thoughts in our heart. God knows when our attitudes, just like Jonah's attitude, need some confrontation. Now, some of us learn the easy way. We hear God make a change and get back on track. Others of us, we need to learn the hard way. And that's what Jonah chooses. He runs away from God. He goes to the port of Joppa, wants to go to a place called Tarshish. I've always wondered where and what was Tarshish. I want you to read you a very interesting verse from 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 20, verse 22. This is about Israel's richest king it ever had, Solomon. This is what it says. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, apes, and baboons. Now see that little H that's beside ships? If you click on it, if you're using an online Bible, it'll say the Hebrew says, of ships of Tarshish. So Solomon actually had a whole little fleet of ships that would go to this place called Tarshish, and every three years they would return, loaded up with all this amazing stuff, including gold and silver and baboons. Pretty amazing. Well, baboons are cool, aren't they? I don't know. To the average Israelite, that would have sounded like an exotic jungle paradise. Scholars believe that it referred to the bottom of Spain, 
what today is called the Costa del Sol or the Sun Coast. And it wrapped down to what we call Gibraltar, kind of the very edge of the Mediterranean. That was kind of the edge of the known world in Jonah's day. Nobody knew what was kind of past that. If you sailed out there, like, good luck. Who knows what's out there? That's kind of the edge of the world out there, baby. Um, So Jonah picks a place as absolutely as far away from Israel as he knows. He says, take me to the very end. Take me to Tarshish. Now, if we're honest, probably all of us have had moments like that in our life. Work is hard. Family relationships are hard. Nothing's working out. And we just say, ah, I just want to escape to an exotic paradise. I want to pack my bags for Tarshish. We do it all the time, don't we? We fantasize about things being different, greener on the other side of the fence. I've had the tragic circumstances, a pastor, of trying to work through marriage counseling with couples in crisis. I've learned to pick pick up on the looks and the statements that tell me the person just wants to chuck the marriage and look for a new relationship that will be so much better. They think in their minds, the next person I find is going to be incredibly awesome. They're going to be the soulmate that I've always longed for. I just have to get rid of my current spouse first. You know what? That person in that moment has packed their bag for Tarshish. If God brought you here today and you find yourself at such a serious crossroads, let me gently and lovingly tell you that Tarshish isn't a paradise when you get there. The new partner won't fix all the problems. If possible, God wants us to obediently go to Nineveh. God wants us to stay and be faithful, work things out. Go to marriage counseling. Go to marriage retreat weekends. Be honest. Get our partner to change, but also be willing to change ourselves. Now, hear me very clearly. I said, if possible. If your spouse is being physically or mentally abusive, you are not required to keep the marriage going. If your spouse is having affairs in you, you're not required to keep the marriage going. Those things happen, you are best to get out and get out quickly. For the rest of marriages that aren't in that boat, I want to encourage all of us, don't just dream about packing your bags for Tarshish. Be obedient and instead stay and be faithful. Now the application isn't just for something like marriage, it can be our job as well. Some jobs are disastrous nightmares and we just need to get out of them, while others are challenging and difficult. If your job is in the latter category, then we need to dig deep and rely on Christ. Ask for His words, His energy, His wisdom. How do we bring change at our workplace? Confront things that aren't right, but how do we stay in those situations? It's so tempting to want to just give up and run to Tarshish. And you thought this book was about a dude and a whale, and it wasn't going to be relevant to your life. Ha! Well, we've made it only a few verses. already pushes us to look at ourselves in a new way. We're going to keep the story going, picking it up in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break it up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. 
The captain went to him said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take note of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. The ancient world believed in separate gods or goddesses for each country or people group or region. They generally thought that if you traveled and left your country, you would leave the domain of your God and you would go into the territory of a new God. You can see this in the sailors. All the sailors were afraid. Each one cried out to his own God. That means they're calling out to the God of the place where they grew up, the God of their country. The captain figures this is the same for Jonah. He says, how can you sleep, buddy? We're in this massive storm. We're all about to die here. He says, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will save us. And Jonah is the only one not with the program. Everyone on board, both Jonah himself, the captain, and the sailors, are all about to learn a massive le- lesson in God's sovereignty. The one true God, maker of heaven and earth, isn't confined to the national borders of Israel. He is in control and powerful wherever Jonah found himself. And it's true for us as well. There is nowhere we can go that is outside of God's control. First obvious visible sign of that is the sailors in verse 7. They cast lots. I looked that up, and and it looked like in the ancient world that would generally be a dice kind of game. They would throw dice, and they would determine kind of through random chance what was going on. Well, God takes control of that little dice game, and it all points exactly to Jonah. And at at that moment, I think Jonah inside his own head said, shoot, running away didn't work. Now we turn to our final few verses and my third point entitled the first sermon in the book, verses 8 through 10. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Now, we read those, and it's very calm in here. We're not in the middle of a storm. Kind of sounds like a chat around the galley table. It actually would have been screaming at each other. They would have been screaming at Jonah, Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you doing? As the wind and the rain pounded down and the storm was threatening to drown them all. Now, remember... Every reference to God or gods has been extremely general to this point. That all comes to a screeching halt when Jonah responds. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Most of your English Bibles, the word Lord, or the title Lord, is capital L, capital O-R-D. Whenever you see that in our English Bibles, that's the, the author's trying to tell you What stands behind that is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Now, what does that mean? Well, Moses was kind of God's first leader that he really called to rescue his people out of Egypt. 
And Moses, after he gets this whole call, has this whole amazing experience with God, he kind of puts up his hand. He's like, um, Lord, just one quick question. When I go back to the Israelites and I say, God wants you to go, and they say, well, which God? What's his name? What, what am I supposed to tell them? And God reveals, he says, my personal name is Yahweh. And it means I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. I'm not dependent on anyone else to exist. I'm the beginning and the end. And so Jonah says, I worship not just small G-O-D, I worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, the one who created everything. And his boundaries don't stop at the borders of Israel. Way out here in the middle of Mediterranean, in the middle of the storm, God is still in control. And then he had to be honest with the sailors. Say, I'm running away, but in an actual fact, I thought I could run away from God, but I can't. He's the creator. He's the ruler of all of it. And when I read that this week and I understood that properly, I thought, you know what? I need to hear that. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. If you are having a Jonah moment in your life, you are running the opposite way from God. If you're running away from God, maybe you're lying, cheating, stealing, having an affair on your spouse, stealing money from work, find yourself addicted to pornography, drugs, or alcohol. I'm here to lovingly but firmly tell you things haven't changed since Jonah's day. God is still sovereign. He is still in control. You can try to run away to Tarshish, but it won't work. God calls us to turn back to himself in repentance and faith. And when we do that, we will experience a miracle like we never have. Maybe you're here this morning and that's not the issue at all. You aren't running away from God in disobedience. You are simply in a really tough place. You've been praying. Things don't seem to get better. You've been praying, but you aren't seeing any answers yet. You need to hear the exact same message that God taught to Jonah 2,700 years ago. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. There's nothing that is outside of his power. He is listening, and he has not forgotten you. Well, we've only begun. Eight-week journey, only nine verses in, but I hope you can see this morning that this 2,700-year-old story is incredibly true to life, relevant, and maybe exactly what you and I need to hear. Amen? Dustin, come and pray for us.